grit shows itself when you are pursuing the chasm in between your current state and your desired future state. Like that's where grit comes to play. It's not when you're maintaining something great necessarily. It's not when, you know, you have no idea you're directionless. Like it really comes to play when you aren't where you want to be or your team's not where you want to be or your business isn't where you want it to be. And like what transpires in your pursuit of that. And then to make it really fun and memorable, I made an equation for grit. So my equation is grit equals motivation times creativity times perseverance divided by obstacles. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always start these things off the same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. Jubin always manages to butcher it. So when I do, (laughs) just let me know. Deal? Okay. That's a deal. All right. So you went to UCSB. You got your BA in art history, architecture. I've heard you talk about like sociology, anthropology. You're looking for your way. (laughs) Then... I don't know if this was sequential or not, but you got your master's of lit and early European art from Christie's education. I don't know if that has anything to do with Christie's auction house. No, no, you're spot on. Okay. All right. So you did that. And was that back to back? That was back to back. Okay. All right. And then you joined at the time what was quite a small startup called Yelp. You started in 2007 as an account executive in San Francisco. You did that for a year. Then you became a sales manager. You moved to Scottsdale. You did that for two years. Then you were the senior director of head of East Coast sales. You moved to the Big Apple. You did four years in Manhattan. Then you were the vice president of European sales. You moved to London, two and a half years. Then you were the SVP of customer success, two and a half years. SVP and GM of local revenue for about a year. And as of, call it about eight months ago, early this year, 2020, you started as the chief revenue officer for The Real Real. In conjunction, you're also the co-founder of a startup with one of your friends, I think, neighbors from (laughs) Marin. It's a weed company, cannabis company called Molly Jones. What did I screw up? Man, you you know, you got the like core pieces of it pulled together. There's like a couple details in between that might be might be interesting for the audience. I don't know. Detail me. Okay, so actually, let's go all the way back. Wait, wait, can I interrupt you? Yes. What was your first job ever? Yelp. No, no, no. Like before Yelp, you never oh, had a job. Oh, oh, yeah. Geez, of course I did. I worked in retail summers, starting. I I want to say it was in eighth grade, and then worked restaurants. During college, I nannied a little bit during college. During grad school, I worked at an art gallery, interned part-time at one of the auction houses. So I had a bunch of like odd jobs here and there where I learned a lot about myself. And by the way, when I am hiring people now, I love to hear that they've had service background. Like when yeah. somebody's like waited tables or yeah. you know dealt with the public, I'm like, all right, you've got thick skin. I can hire you. So anyway, yes, those were my very early jobs. Then I went to UC Santa Barbara. I studied art history. I would say it's interesting because I, I did like fine in school, but I wasn't necessarily the most academic 4.0 student until my junior year of college when I studied abroad. I moved to Italy and I was already majoring in history and started studying art history and completely fell in love with the subject matter. And it was so incredible to do it in Italy where so much of what you're studying is coming to life. 
I also loved languages, still do to this day. And so I, I think I was like two credits shy of a minor in Italian. And so I spent some time in Italy, loved it, loved it, changed my uh, major to art history, then just became enamored with academics and studying the subject matter. Went straight into my graduate degree, which was through Christie's Auction House. It's actually accredited through University of Glasgow, but it's hosted through Christie's in London. I'd really enjoyed my time in Europe. I'd moved from Santa Barbara back to Europe, this time in London, and did my graduate degree there. I wrote my master's thesis on the uh, fine and decorative arts of the Burgundian dukes of the medieval era. Okay. And- <laughs> I wish I knew what that was. Okay. I mean, I wish I could tell you that it was, uh, it's been <laughs> applicable in my career, but, uh, <laughs> but what's interesting. And I, I tell this, you know, I, I sometimes get connected to family friends or, you know, through networks of folks, uh, talk to folks who are in school. And what I tell them and what I learned firsthand is that in the end, it actually doesn't really matter what you majored in. It does matter that you fall in love with learning. Because I'm such a big believer that leaders and truly successful people are lifelong learners. And I had this whole presentation I used to give at Yelp over the years called The Infinite Learner. And I think that really intellectually curious people will find their way into success. And so whether you end up with an MBA or you major in econ or art history or Spanish or music, like what really matters is that you find a passion for learning and become a very inquisitive and intellectually curious person. So sorry, you weren't asking for that type of life lesson, but that's where it all began. (laughs) No, no. Give me all the life lessons. Let's explore that a little bit more. I've built like a set of characteristics that I think are super, super important to qualify for at most organizations, but certainly at early stage startups. What I think of as learning is curiosity. Yeah. So do you love to learn? And then I start to ask the question around how do you learn? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the ways that you learn? Yes. Show me the mediums that you're learning about. I want to know all the diverse sets of things that you're interested in. And then I want to know the process for how you go about learning. I love that. I really like the idea of like, all right. I agree. Cause like, if you're curious, that means you want to get better. If you want to get better, that means over time, compound interest says you'll be better than most people right. within five to 10 years, whatever that is. Yes. If you say like, all right, Katie's going to start in 2007. And then by 2017, if she's going to continue to learn, she's going to be a pretty lethal asset to this organization in the long run. So when you talk about it to your team, when you talk about like the lifelong learner, yeah, how do you frame it? What do you say to the team? I would imagine it's something like, hey, invest in yourself because that's good for us. That's good for you. Yep. And that's good for like your upward mobility within Yelp. Something along those lines? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't work at Yelp anymore, but to all the Yelp employees, yes, you should. Right. I assume you were giving that talk to those Yelp employees. <laughs> um, yes. So, um, because I still give it to my employees today at The Real Real and, you know, to folks who don't work for me or folks who I end up in contact with who are asking for career advice, et cetera. So I guess there's a a bunch to unpack in your question. I would start with, I believe that leaders are readers. And so I truly believe that folks who want to grow in a leadership capacity, it's really important that you read. And it's important that you read the news because, you know, things that happen in the world affect how teams are operating within companies. And nothing put a spotlight on that greater than 2020 from the pandemic to parents working from home and living at work to, you know, civil unrest, all of those things had tremendous impact on our workforce. 
And if you aren't staying abreast on what's the state of COVID, what is happening in the state of affairs, how are these things affecting my team's mentality? How are these things affecting my team's physically? You're going to have a hard time leading them. I think context and leading folks through a bigger picture vision is so, so, so important, especially in really high growth environments. So, you know, I really believe leaders are readers. I love to read books. And actually, I should say, when I say I love to read books, I'm actually dyslexic and I am very auditory and I do really well with audiobooks. I know some people hate them. And the minute that they, you know, start picking a hangnail, they stop listening to like mm-hmm. what's coming in through the audio. I'm the opposite. If you read something to me or if I'm listening to it, I will regurgitate line by line what was just uh, read. So I do really well with Audible. I also do like to read on my Kindle. And if I'm feeling really splurgy, I'll do that whisper sync where, it, you know, it's like 20 bucks. That? You basically have to buy the book on both platforms and then it'll sync them just so you, like wherever you leave off on your Kindle will pick up on the audio and vice wow, versa. that is fancy reading. It's okay, real, It's real fancy reading. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but I love to read. I think... I usually average like at least two books a month, but lately I've been a little bit busy. It's been a little bit less than that. Leaders are readers. I like that. Are you interviewing for reading as a format of learning, not only for leaders, but for reps? How do you think about that characteristic? I'm not going to force every sales rep who comes through to want to be a leader necessarily, right? So, um, of course, it's brownie points and bonus points if you have somebody who shows that degree of intellectual curiosity, but they also don't have to show it only through reading, right? Sure. They may find that they're obsessed with whatever, some other medium, whether it's, you know, podcasts like our platform here, or maybe they're obsessed with Clubhouse, or maybe they're obsessed with TikTok, and they, you know, TikTok has all these random corners of TikTok that you can find yourself in, and I'm open to all of that. Definitely when I'm screening for leaders, I absolutely am looking for, I will ask them, what's the last great book that you read? Tell me about something you've learned about leadership in the last year. I'm really kind of looking for folks who are in that constant growth mindset and who are looking at ways to increase, or I guess, sustain their intellectual curiosity. Yeah. Okay. Well, now that we've gone down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Sorry. So then that took us to, I finished grad school. Uh, I grew up here in the Bay Area, so I finished grad school. And you grew up in Los Altos. I did, yes. So did I. I was the brokest kid in Los Altos. I can almost stamp that on my resume. Oh my gosh, I didn't. I didn't know that we shared a hometown. Did you go to Los Altos High? No, I moved to San Diego my freshman year of high school. Okay, where did you go to middle school? I went to Block Middle School and Loyola Elementary. <gasps> I went to Egan, Egan and Block. We were like <laughs> middle school rivals, except I'm probably a lot older than you. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I love it. <laughs> anyway, so I moved back to Los Altos. I just finished graduate school, so I obviously was broke and I was sleeping on my parents' couch. I always say sleeping on my parents' couch. I was sleeping in my childhood bed. Yeah. And your mother's a PhD from Stanford. That's right. That's right. She's a neuroscientist. So I had a bit of a life crisis. During my time completing my master's degree, I interned at Christie's and it became evident to me quickly that I didn't think the auction house was really the right environment for me. I also worked part-time at a gallery and it was also evident to me that galleries weren't the right place for me. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to get a PhD because I don't know what else there is to do. And my mom sort of sat me down and was like, just go work a couple of years before you get a PhD, which thank God she gave me that advice. And I kind of just had this quarter life crisis that was like, what on earth have I done? I absolutely loved studying this subject matter 
And yet I just find that my practical real world career applications simply are not what I want. I ended up taking an interview down at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, in their medieval tapestries department. And the head curator's first question was, how is your medieval German? (laughs) And I said, you know, actually my medieval Italian isn't terrible because I just spent a summer (laughs) translating uh, French and Italian, but my modern German's not great. And uh, so my medieval German's not great. And she basically just told me like, you're never gonna have a future here unless you improve your medieval German. So that was the moment I hope that curator finds her way to this podcast interview. Seems unlikely. But that was the moment when I was like, oh boy, I need to change gears. I need to look for a different type of job. And I have literally no idea what that's going to be. And so I came home from that interview. I'd road tripped and I basically cried the whole six hours from LA to Los Altos and then sat on my parents' couch crying, being like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? I literally have no idea to do with myself. And my mom, who is a great motivator, sat me down and said, Katie, you can live with dad and me for as long as you need. And that's all it took for me to get on my dad's computer (laughs) and load my resume into Monster. Remember Monster? Yeah. And then that's how I landed the job at Yelp. I love that story. (laughs) And the world is a better place that you're not in art history and you are running (laughs) tech organizations. So I'm glad your mother gave you some words of encouragement or discouragement, however you think about it. So (laughs) Couple things. I want to talk to you about the real, real. I have a bunch of questions about your rise at Yelp. It was obviously a very formative part of your career. Well, technically speaking, all of your career minus eight months of it. <laughs> and so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how you handle priorities and prioritization. I want to talk about kind of a balancing data versus people. Before I do any of that, random question What was the conversation like at the dinner table for you growing up? And what I mean by that is I also grew up with a mother who has a PhD and a stepdad who does as well. And so me being the like, you know, loose liberal arts guy that doesn't have much intellect to contribute to the dinner conversation was very different than what they were talking about. And so one of the things that I think a lot about is how formative you're learning, like going back to like, how do you learn? My learnings were at the dinner table. I learned a lot at the dinner table. I also learned that I did not want to do what they're constantly talking about, like the science and all this stuff. It was very uninteresting to me. That's such a great question in like getting to know someone. I hope anybody who's listening who's single, you should definitely ask your future partner that. So I'll give you a quick story about that, that my brother and I were just laughing at about, I don't know, like three or four weeks ago. So when I was at UC Santa Barbara, I was in my sophomore year, I had a new roommate and my parents came in town and they said, oh, we're going to get in town early. Do you want to go for lunch? And I said, yeah, sure. Can I invite Christy, my roommate? They're like, great. We'd love to meet her. So we go to lunch and we have our normal Sullivan family lunch. We're talking about politics. We're talking about science. We're talking about all these things. We leave and my parents got in their car to go to the hotel. I get in my car with my roommate to drive back to our house in Isla Vista. And she looks at me and goes, did your family always like talk that way? And I was like, what do you mean? Like talk what way? She's like, I don't know, just about like science and art and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, I guess we do. Cause you just, you don't know until you kind of get out into the world that the way that you or your family does things is any different from the way anybody else does. So I think that probably somewhat characterizes the types of conversations, definitely like pretty intellectual type conversations 
My mom did a lot of research at Stanford. My dad's a surgeon and teaches, uh, you know, administers board exams and, you know, teaches summers at Stanford or UCSF. And so, yeah, I would say dinner conversations, they would get very heated politically. Mm. We definitely spent a lot of time talking about politics from a very young age, talked a lot about science, which I'm really grateful for in this day and age because understanding, not only did it help set me up as my career got more and more technical, like understanding data sets and what basics around statistics and that type of stuff. I think you have a decent foundation when that's sort of like an easy language at home. I'm also really grateful that like science doesn't feel like a really foreign language. It's certainly not what I studied. I would absolutely not call myself an expert, but you know, when I talk to friends who are scientists, there's a little bit of a mutual understanding. And certainly in 2020 and 2021, that feels like an important piece of knowledge or baseline of knowledge to have and to give to my kids. Yeah, I agree. Can I share one personal story and then we'll, we'll dump into it? Yes, yes, yes. It's about Yelp. So I graduated early to focus on what I thought was going to be a huge career. And I took so many BDR, like at lead gen, like I just wanted like a BDR job. Honestly, I just wanted to be a part of a high growth tech company. I also didn't really know that I wanted to be a BDR. I just knew that I had the gift of gab and I could certainly talk and not even necessarily effectively. I just talked many words per minute. And so I thought, you know what, like sales maybe could be the right thing for me. And so I knew someone at school who worked at Yelp and I was very keen on working at Yelp. I loved the product. I loved the culture. It was young. It was in San Francisco. So I interviewed for two different jobs. The first was a recruiting coordinator and Actually, in anticipation of this, I went back through my emails from almost a decade ago and found my project, my assignment for a recruiting coordinator. And it was, I somehow messed this up. This is pathetic. It was <laughs> write us a schedule for, you know, a interview day for a candidate. And I have no idea. I I didn't get the job. I'm embarrassed to say. I can't believe it. And I so I didn't get that job. Yeah. And I was pretty sad. Honestly, I can't even believe I'm admitting this. I reread it and I was still competitive. Like, I can't believe they didn't hire me. Like, I was like... Wait, what was the second job you applied for? So the second job was for, after I got ruthlessly denied by the recruiting team, they said, we think maybe you could be a good fit for sales. Kind of like giving me a soft landing. So I said, great. And so I think it was called the small business account executive team, which is a little bit of closing, but it's mostly lead gen. I kind of took it. Anyway, so... I go through the interview process there and I was so raw. And I remember, I actually, this is seared in my brain. The hiring manager called me and I answered the phone and I said, hello. I didn't say, hi, this is Jubin. And I was really, really keen. So they said no. Okay. So like long story <laughs> short, they said no. I was like, and, where is this going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they said no. And I was really motivated to understand why they said no. Mm -hmm. And so I pushed them and pushed them and Yelp had this policy where they can't share feedback, whatever. And I said, that's ridiculous. Just give me some feedback. So I called the manager's cell and one of the pieces of feedback that he gave me was that I answered the phone, no. hello, no. instead of, hi, this is Jubin. And I was no. so pissed. I was so that's pissed. Crazy. Yes, yes. And I was like, you know what? I never had a chance. Like, oh I never gosh. had a chance. Well, okay. I mean, that's, that's just crazy. I, I certainly hope that wasn't a policy for long. Uh, oh, for two at Yelp. What year was that? That was 2009, maybe. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so we should talk about my experiences at Yelp because I was helping kind of build out some of the recruiting playbook at that point in time. That just sounds crazy. For all I know, it could have been you. So anyway, <laughs> I love what the company's doing. I've always had a competitive spirit about me and Yelp. By the way, they're not the only ones that said no to me. Another 30 companies did too. So like I have like my hit list of like those that said no. Clearly, <laughs> this is just like case in point that while we try to do our best to have really good recruiting practices at every company, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. They're still probably pretty thankful that they said no. <laughs> okay, so that's it. I'm done. Like I'll get off my soapbox. I'm not <laughs> mad. Don't worry. I'm furious. So, okay. At the beginning of 2007, and they were actually only doing about a million dollars. Yep. And at the end of 2007, they were doing about three million. Yeah. And so Jeremy and the team raised the seed a little bit before that, maybe 2005 or something, hadn't raised that much money. And the business clearly hadn't hit that inflection point yet. They were still trying to figure out like, what is product market fit? At first, it started as a peer-to-peer giving reviews to other businesses that was like more of a social network rather than a repository of reviews on behalf of different restaurants. And then I think that switch started to happen around 2007. Clearly, you can see the uptick of like one to three. And then you joined. And then the rest is history. It was all me. And then you put the team on your back. and <laughs> Obviously not true. <laughs> and $800 million of revenue later or whatever. So a couple questions. So you did an account executive job for about a year. And this is pretty typical, like, all right shit, we're growing fast now. Like we need managers. I actually have a great story about that. Give it to me. So, okay. So I joined and there was a class of, I can't remember now if we were 14 or 16 people, but it was a big group of people considering the entire company was like, I, I want to say like 35, 40 people. So it was like, holy mackerel, like we are hiring a big group. And I remember I sort of started on day one having literally no idea what I was getting myself into. I just wrote a master's thesis on the fine and decorative arts of the Burgundian Dukes. And I remember being like, oh, oh, I'm in the big sales class. How exciting. And then we sit through the first few days of training, and that's an air quotes training, where Jed Nachman, who's now the COO, was then the VP of sales, kind of just like talks to you about how Yelp compares to the Yellow Pages. And then is like, all right, have at it. And by the way, we're going to fire a bunch of you in your first 60 days if you don't make the cut. And we were all like, "Mm, okay. So I kind of like start getting my sea legs under me. Actually, I didn't. I was terrible at the job for the first like 60 days. I was like terrified to talk about money with customers and just not doing great work. But anyway, so I, I get my sea legs under me. I start succeeding, become a top rep. And then we were opening up the New York office. So I actually moved to New York in 2008. And I'm two weeks into my job in New York as an account executive, still a salesperson. And the then New York sales director comes over and taps me on the shoulder on a Friday. And he's like, hey, uh, when you come in on Monday, could you be a manager? And I was like, yeah, totally. (laughs) And that's how I became a manager. That's how I started my career in leadership. No kidding. And that's actually a really good segue into the question that I was going to ask, which was you were young. You were sub 25 probably, right? Mm -hmm. And you're managing who was your peers. Yep. Not long ago. They were all in the same class as you. A lot of the audience is bona fide CROs. There's also a lot of the audience that is like looking for their first management sure, job. Sure, yeah. And I think probably the biggest step that I've seen that's really hard to overcome is not the job, it's yourself. A lot of the time I feel like you're your own worst enemy making the first jump to management because you're just like scared. 
and you're scared of yourself and you have imposter syndrome. Did you feel that? Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, it's interesting. My personality is a little bit interesting. I think I'm 50, 50, 50% of me was like, well, of course, of course I've been asked to be a manager. I'm great. <laughs> and then like 50% of me was like, wait, holy shit. I actually have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. I should probably start reading books because I literally don't know what I'm going to do on Monday. And so it's interesting because I have now promoted many, many folks from frontline individual contributor into management. And I used to give a little spiel every time. And I would say, listen, the transition from competitor to advocate is one of the largest transitions you will make in your career. So welcome to a brand new chapter. Everything is changing. And what made you great at your previous job is not what is going to make you great at your new job. And I try to remind myself of that all the time. And by the way, that dynamic hasn't gone away. I still, you know, vast majority of my direct reports are older than me today and may have more experience maybe at the specific business or in mm-hmm. business longer. And so, you know, for like, you know, really ambitious, successful folks, that dynamic may take a very long time for that tide to turn. And I think it's really important to, number one, recognize it. And I don't think it's like um, you just overcome it. Like, it is what it is. I Like, I am younger in my life and career than some folks who I work with, and I'm older than others. Um, and so I think it's good to just embrace where you sit. And then to the extent that you are able to help shape and mold folks who are coming up underneath you, help them make that transition. Because it is a a large mental shift. And with a little bit of help, people can make it really beautifully and that can propel them a lot further, a lot faster. It's like kind of like compounding investment. I love the way you said that competitor to advocate. If you could pick one quality or trait that you would recommend someone be hyper aware of and develop Mm. actively to be most successful in that transition, are there any that come to mind? I'm putting you on the hot seat here. Oh, gosh. And think of that specific transition. I mean, when I think more broadly about transitions in general, the biggest thing is learning context. So I think a mistake that a lot of people make as they're navigating, you know, high growth environments or environments where your job is changing or you're getting promoted, et cetera, every time your job shifts, whether that's by nature of like the company now being twice as big a year later or by nature of you actually changing job titles, You need to understand that context change. Otherwise, the company will outgrow you. And so that means everything from like understand your cross-functional partners. Don't just go to your product partners if you're in sales and say, hey, I've heard from 50 clients that we need to build this. So can you please build that? You say, hey, tell me about how you think about building things. Tell me about how your team works. How do you guys prioritize? Oh, okay. I've gotten a little bit of feedback from the customers. Have you guys ever looked at an idea like this? It's like seeking to understand context Mm is such an important part of growing as a leader. So I don't know if that answers your specific question about that one transition moment from like IC to management, but hopefully hopefully there's something applicable there. It does. Maybe if I could say it a different way, and I think about like what is the next generation of sales leader, and I think a lot about input versus output. So I think a lot of the time we're focused on output, whereas input really matters. Yep. I also think a lot about like, breadth versus depth and range. And so I think that specific point around like, look, the future sales leader in my mind is the choreographer. And the choreographer needs to be able to speak to all the different points, Mm -hmm. all the different functional units that are talking to each other. And so I think one of the superpowers that you develop at an early stage startup, like for you, you've been in sales technically the entire time, but you've worn so many hats that you've learned to speak other languages. And so I think when you talk about like 
context, I think about that as range, like Mm -hmm. being able to have range to speak to different parts of the organization. And when you say advocate, you can't be an advocate for your team unless you can appropriately get them the resources that they need. And you can't get them the resources that they need unless you can speak the language of your BU partners. Yes, absolutely. That's a much better summary and much more eloquent than (laughs) than the way I put it. So thank you. You teed me up for it. (laughs) Okay. So that was one question that I had. The second Did you ever hesitate when they not only gave you a new job and a responsibility, but in a new city? Yeah, that's a good question. So my move paths went San Francisco to New York, New York to Phoenix, Phoenix to New York, New York to London, London to Germany, Germany to San Francisco. And during that time period, I was dating my then boyfriend, now husband, father of my three children. And we did long distance for four and a half years. And the short answer is during the time of my life where we were doing long distance, by the way, if there's anybody listening to this podcast, who's like at whatever phase of their lives and careers, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I think this person might be the one. Maybe I don't want to move. Here's what you'll hear from me. Put, Put the relationship to the test. If you cannot withstand some long distance for a year or two, you're definitely not going to be able to withstand babies because that is a whole lot more challenging. So yeah, yeah, I didn't think we'd be getting sales and relationship advice in one. Oh yeah, although I mean, it all bleeds into each other, right? So anyway, yes, my husband and I did a lot of long distance, and during that time period, no, I never really questioned the moves. I basically was like, I'm on a rocket ship. I'm blessed to have this opportunity. I'm going to make good on it and deliver as much as I can and be as great as I can. And I'm going to take advantage of everything that comes my way. That was very much my mentality. Then I got married and things do shift a little bit, like getting married and you're thinking through where does this relationship and the life that I want to build kind of like fit into my priority set. And I wouldn't say it necessarily changed the outcomes because I did, in fact, move to Europe with my husband. But it did, it was a lot more conversation and a lot more thought to kind of set that up. We were also sort of planning through and thinking like, now is the time that we aren't going to have kids. And so let's wait a couple of years. Let's take advantage personally. And, you know, my husband was leaving his then first startup and he said, you know, let's do it. I'll like be a house husband and work on my next startup idea. And I'm here for it. Love that. So we did that for a couple of years. Then we moved back to San Francisco very much with the intention of wanting to come back to the Bay Area, like have a family, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for that. Before we run out of time. I feel like we've talked so much about like personal stuff and like it's perfect. human stuff. We haven't actually talked a lot about the business growth. <laughs> well, it turns out the human stuff might be the key enabler of the business growth. <laughs> so. All right. On priorities. So I want to talk about, actually, can I read you a quote? And I went into the archives here and one of your friends, she is a blogger or she has a blog. Okay. And she did a piece on you. She actually also did a piece on your husband. That was episode four, I think. Mm -hmm. Not that anyone's counting. Man, you really went into the... uh... Oh yeah. Come on. Yeah. So there's a quote that I want to read because I think it frames up the way that I want to have this conversation around priorities. Katie applies 100% of her energy to whatever is in front of her. At the office, she's not satisfied until she understands everything going on around her. She's the most focused, sweaty cyclist in spin class. She's the first to challenge anyone to a chugging contest. I've watched many a beefy dudes walk away in shame. The moment she decides she's tired, she'll pass out like a toddler riding in the backseat of a car within two minutes. No matter what she's doing, Katie is all in. That remains a very accurate description of me. (laughs) So... The question that I have, the most operative sentence in that paragraph is no matter what she's doing, Katie's all in. So when you have a personality like yours, where you are 
sequentially all in. You need to figure out where you go all in first because 100%. if you go all in, like your natural intuition, whether you start a new job or whatever it is, is to go do. And if you start doing and you go down the wrong rabbit hole, it often takes a long time to climb out of that well. So do you have a framework? Like I'm going to leave this intentionally open-minded and sure. let you take the mic, but like, do you have a framework, a thought process for like, what does prioritization mean when you're the CRO of The Real Real or SVP of Yelp and you have so many competing priorities? Where do you start? How do you say no? What does saying no look like? I'll digress. So I would say that that remains a very accurate description. My husband often jokes because we'll have like something that we need to get done as a family. And he's like, well, if it's not on Katie's priorities list, it may as well not exist. But if it is on her priorities list, it will literally be done the best anything has ever been done. <laughs> and that is so accurate. So you're very right. And I had to learn a difficult way out of you know many different experiences at, at Yelp, especially how hard that can be when you prioritize the wrong thing and you've found yourself down that rabbit hole. And I talk very frequently with my team today at The Real Real. The Real Real is so interesting and we haven't talked too much yet about the transition from Yelp to The Real Real. But one of the things that really drew me to The Real Real was as I got to know the company better during the interview process and I consulted briefly, what I saw was this business that had such incredible product market fit that it just kind of grew and grew and grew and grew and grew, and grew up really, really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And so I saw all these amazing areas of opportunity where it was like, oh, wow, everything grew up so quick. We never spent the time to think about how do we scale these processes or what does you know this look like at scale? So that's one of the things that drew me to the company. And it's also one of the biggest challenges because the truth is when I look around today, I see so many opportunities for improvement. And one of the big frameworks that I use both for myself and for my team is play the tape all the way to the end, which I think I borrowed from Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, <laughs> apropos, since I was just sharing how much I love to chug beers, but play I the tape it. all the way to the end. I don't actually love to chug beers, but I just happen to be really good <laughs> at it. You just want to bury the big guys that are challenging you. <laughs> exactly. But play the tape all the way to the end is the framework that I like to use, which is Somebody comes up with an idea or they see something that's not working. And, you know, I recently I had one of my direct reports came to me and he said, I just discovered this thing basically about the way that we're working opportunities in Salesforce. And it's, you know, it's not the right way to work. And I was like, okay, let's play the tape all the way to the end. What's it going to take for you to get your team working in a new way? Well, I'd have to do this. I'd have to do that. I need the tech team to do this. Yeah. Okay. And then let's say we then do that and we get them all trained and then they start doing that and they're working that way. What's the outcome going to be? And it was like, uh, we'll be able to say that we're a little more like best in class in the way that we operate. And I was like, okay. And is that going to drive your business? Is that going to make you overperform on your financial plan by 10 to 50 points? Because if not, it just can't be a priority right now. And so I think that framework to think of how you ruthlessly prioritize for business impact is so, so, so important, especially in high growth environments where there are a lot of opportunities. I love that. Play the tape all the way to the end. The other thing that I've heard you talk about is that you also prioritize things outside of work, knowing that work is a priority. So that's going to sound kind of weird. And I do the same thing. I am not a good guy if I don't meditate in the morning. Mm -hmm. And by good guy, I mean not good employee, like period. Like 
If I don't meditate in the morning, if I don't get eight hours of sleep, if I don't get a workout, if I eat like crap for lunch, like I just know that I will not be able to bring it at work. Totally. And so as I think about Jubin's priorities, and right now I have the opportunity where work is my priority, like that's what it is. So I always think about what are the other things that I have to put, like what systems do I need to put in place in order to enable my number one priority? So people think like I don't have time for XYZ workout, whatever it is, because I have to go work. If you're really prioritizing your work, then you think about like, well, I think about what are the key enablers for me to be most effective in the time that I'm going to be working. Yes. And I, and you've talked about this in a similar way. Go I ahead. I was going to say, I think that what you're talking about, it's all in the same vein, is if you don't prioritize the highest order bids, you're not going to have time for anything else. So now I'm at this phase of life where I have three kids. They are all three of them, three and under. I have a almost three and a half year old, a two year old and a nine month old. So I've got huge demands there. Uh, and then I have like my marriage and my partnership, which is a really important priority in my life. That's sort of like part of, but also separate from my kids. Mm-hmm. I've got a big career. He also has a big career. He's the founder of a startup and I've got, you know, family, community, all that kind of stuff. And so if you don't figure out how to prioritize and how to say no, you'll just get eaten alive. But I think I think it's both saying no and also I liked your point on, I don't know if there's a language you use, but habits. I think a lot of it's habits. So what's worked for our family is sleep training our kids. So my kids sleep from seven to seven. I wake up every day at six or a little bit before six and I work out from six to seven. Then like wake up, hang with the kids, get ready. I'm usually in the office by like 7.30, 7.45. And then I can like focus on work. And then I basically have my like cutoff time where it's like, now I have sacred time with family where I'm not going to do any work. And that's usually 4.30 to like 7 when the kids go down. And then, you know, some lots of nights I have to pick up a little bit and get a little more work done in the evenings, but that's fine. Like I'm happy to do that because I feel fulfilled. I've exercised. I've had a good day of work. I've had sacred time with my kids. I've, you know, had dinner with my husband. And so I think it's setting up those habits and really kind of like working those. What you said, it, it really resonated with me. You were talking about balance. And you used three measuring sticks to describe, I'm not even sure, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Three measuring sticks to describe balance in your life. And those were time, stress, and happiness. And so as you think about your priorities and you think about what does balance mean around my priorities, those were the three yardsticks that you identified as key pillars for like ways that you need to fill your cup. I don't know, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, totally. I mean, I think like I remember I used to give that talk a lot. Um, so I'm not sure where you may have come across it, but you often hear people, especially I, I talk a lot with moms or women because there's not, as you move up and up and up, I don't know if this is true or not, but a recent stat that I read is like something like 4% of CROs are women or some mm-hmm. like obscenely small number. So I often think about what's working for me. And if that's working for me, maybe it'll work for some others and maybe not. And either way, like, can I just offer that up as a potential helpful thought? And I think too often we get, and whether you're a mom or not, you get sucked into this cycle of thinking that work-life balance is only about time. And the truth is I've had times where I'm working 
way too many hours yeah. and I'm really unhappy about it. And I've had times I'm working way too many hours and I love it. Mm-hmm. I've had times when I'm working, you know, 40 hours a week and I'm not that happy and I'm not that fulfilled. I've had times when I'm working 40 hours a week and it's perfect. So time is only one measurement. You need to know yourself and you need to know kind of what brings you joy and what motivates you in order to set yourself up so that regardless of where that time measurement lands, which don't get me wrong, you probably also want to look at time. It's not that it's meaningless, but regardless of where the time measurement lands, you can still figure out how to balance the other elements at play. Totally. I like that framework a lot. I want to throw out one more quote that I read just because I want to get your opinion on it. And then I want to talk a little bit about like people, data, et cetera, since we haven't been talking about people at all. (laughs) The number one piece of advice that she gives, she being you, gives to ambitious people coming through the office door is to put your butt in your seat, put your head down and make yourself invaluable. When I read this, I thought of a question that I get often, which is like, Jubin, how are you a great networker? What makes you good at networking? And my answer is always the same, which is like, do your job really well and you'll be amazed at the networks that open for you. And all of a sudden, you do a great job, the game comes to you. People reach out to you because you build a brand or a reputation where people can use you. The dirty secret about networking is that like people want to reach out to you because it's good for them, right? right? Under the guise of uh, it's good for you. And so like, if you do a great job, as an individual, if you put your head down, put your butt in the seat and make yourself invaluable, I just thought that was really prudent advice. What's interesting is I think that is very, very true with an asterisk if you are at the right organization for you. And certainly there's a whole nother like sidebar conversation that we can have around like self-advocation and race and gender and all of that, where that advice may not hold water in every single situation, right? Right. With that said, I think if you are in the right environment, and I think like, to me, that comes down to the question of, do I see this company going places? Am I excited about the mission, the people, and like what our ambitious plans are? If so, you're in the right environment and it goes to the Sheryl Sandberg thing of like, you're on a rocket ship. Don't ask what seat on the rocket ship. Just take your seat. Then marry up the Katie Sullivan advice, which is, and then put your butt in your seat and be so good at your job. Be so good at your job that like, you can't help but be noticed. And as long as you're in the right environment, then doors are going to open up. Yeah. So balancing data versus people led, there's probably a misconception of you. Okay. Which is, oh, she worked at Yelp and she's very people-centric. She's obviously good at building relationships. So she must not be good with the data. Unless you've been sitting in a board meeting with Katie, how would you know, right? Right. And I've heard you say this before, like how do you strike that balance? And I'm being intentionally open-ended about it. Yeah, well, so I would say uh, coming up through sales management, first and foremost, in any good sales management environment and sales environment, there's going to be a lot of metrics and KPI tracking. But if there's not a lot of it, then like it's probably not a super well-run organization. So I would say I always had a decent foundation of being sort of metrics and KPIs oriented just by virtue of coming up through sales, especially coming up through high velocity inside sales. With that said, I would describe my first few years in management, probably my first, I don't know, seven or eight years of management as a little more skewed towards the people side, really figuring out how do I scale teams? How do I build culture? How do I manage people? And some of that can get operational when you're talking about 
performance management and, you know, scaling processes and systems. And so, you know, that was all kind of like in my foundation. And then once I moved to customer success, that was a really big unlock for me because we were at a very interesting inflection point as a company at at Yelp at that point in time. We were billing, I want to say it was like 40 or $45 million of monthly subscription revenue Monthly at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so literally 10 basis points of churn reduction had a bigger impact on our financial model than 20 percentage points of quota attainment. And so suddenly it was like, oh, wow, there's something really interesting and highly sensitive in our financial model here. I would love to run that team and go figure out how do we go capitalize on that. And it forced me to take what I knew, which was scaling teams, motivating teams, managing teams by the numbers, all that kind of stuff. But it also really forced me into a much more in-depth and rigorous like financial and operational literacy chapter of my career, which then forced me to really understand the whole revenue model, you know, soup to nuts. And that really opened me up like as a leader to think more about the broader business as opposed to like, how do I over-deliver on my sales numbers? I think in terms of like, how does that map its way into like balancing between managing data and managing people? You know, I'm coming from art history. You know, you'd think that those Burgundian Dukes weren't that helpful in my career, <laughs> but there were some elements that really did come out and help. And one of them was in learning philosophy. You learn about the concept. It's one of the Greek philosophers. I can't remember who now, which is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And I think that when you look at like data and people, people often find themselves in thesis or antithesis. And it's sort of like, we can't do that. The people will hate it. We have to do that because that's what the spreadsheet tells us we have to do. And I'm a big believer in synthesis and like figuring out how you marry these things together and make sure every decision that you make has to be for the betterment of the business. And sometimes bettering the people betters the business and sometimes bettering the business betters the people. And so it's just so important to keep that full kind of 360 degree vantage point in view in order to kind of strike that balance properly. You said something interesting where, long story short, churn meant more to the business than net new attainment by multiples. Why did you take that job? (laughs) Did you see that as an opportunity to get better on the data side? Oh, definitely. Yes, for sure. I mean, I saw it as an opportunity to contribute more at Yelp. So I don't know what year it was. I had this like crystallized aha moment. I think it was when I was in Europe where I was like, oh, One of the main measures, it's not the only measure, but one of the main measures of my success as an executive, as an operator, is what am I doing to increase the market cap of this company? What have I done to help increase the market cap of this company? And when I was learning about our revenue model and learning more, when I was in Europe, which is a good backtrack for a second. So I I basically had run all these sales teams, scaled out a bunch of sales teams. I was leading, I don't know, it was like a 500 person team or something in New York And I had the opportunity to move to Europe, which was a long conversation with my husband and me to decide to go. And then while there, our European business was upside down and we needed to turn it around. I was directly overseeing sales, but I was also kind of like helping and dotted lining with a bunch of other stuff as well. While there, I started to get to know our account management model and just like learn the European revenue model, like from top to bottom a lot better. And then that's what got me interested because we had this very, very small nascent business uh, in Europe. And then I was like, oh, wow, we have this huge business where we're billing 40 to $45 million monthly. What if I could go impact that? That would have a huge impact on our business on the whole in aggregate. 
And that's really motivating if I can go have tremendous impact. And so that was a big reason that I made the move. I love that. Speaking of making moves, you made the move to the real, real. Let's talk about that for the last few minutes. I want to make sure we touch on it. Question one, you grew up at Yelp. You learned everything there and they probably invested as much into you as you did into them. What was that like? Did you cry? Was it sucky? <laughs> you mean the leaving process? Yeah, exactly. And then were there things at the real, real that you saw as things that you've already done that you were like, oh, I know these couple things or I see these qualities. Okay. So leaving Yelp, I was there for 12 years, just over 12 years. By the time I made the decision to leave, it felt like a really, I've been married now for like 13 years. I don't even remember what like a breakup felt like, but it almost (laughs) felt like a really mature breakup that was like, I get it. And I wish you well, no, but I get it. And I wish you well, it was like a really well thought out long process. It was a lot of conversations I had and still have a really deep relationship with our COO who I was reporting to. And by the time the time came around, it was like a lovely celebration. I was like excited for them. Them excited for me. That was December of 2019. I found out, surprise, oops, I got pregnant with my third baby in November of 2019. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like take this pregnancy and I'm going to like take the next at least six months off. I'm going to live my best life. I'm going to take tennis lessons. I'm going to take Spanish lessons. Life is going to be great. And then like eight weeks later, it was like shelter in place, lockdown COVID. Uh, and I was like, wait, but hold on, but I'm pregnant. You can't do that to me. Uh, <laughs> sent the nanny home. I, I have always known that I wasn't necessarily cut out to be a stay-at-home mom. And I got the lesson that I always knew I never needed, that that was not the right job for me. And during that time period, I started reaching out to folks in my network and smaller startups, mostly just looking for consulting and advising opportunities. I was like, you know, I don't know where this whole thing's going to net out. I don't know where we're going to be in COVID. I'll probably end up just picking up the job hunt in 2021 and just call 2020 a wash. But I am missing being in the saddle and like I'm not feeling as fulfilled as a stay-at-home mm-hmm. mom. And so took a couple small like advising and consulting gigs, was having some fun. And I had interviewed at The Real Real in February prior to COVID hitting. And we basically, we all pushed pause because, you know, The Real Real pushed pause on any hiring. I pushed pause. So Julie, the CEO, called me in June or July, June probably, and said, hey, any interest in consulting? And I was like, your timing is perfect. I just finished a project. Would love to pick up another one. So I started doing some consulting. They had shifted a bunch of what was an outside sales model into an inside sales model. So I was kind of bringing some advice and expertise there. And during the consulting agreement or engagement, rather, we all kind of looked around and I was like, gosh, I love you guys. You guys love me. Let's do this thing. And the things that I saw that got me excited, it felt like equal parts, things that were familiar that I thought, wow, I know I'm going to add value there. I know I'm going to be able to help and lift a heavy weight and all of that. And also things that are new. And some of those things that were new, I actually had as like, things I was interested in getting closer to. Like I was very interested in getting into e-com. I sort of, during my thought processes for what's next in my career, thought to myself, well, geez, if we're only like 20% adopted into e-com in the U.S., including all of Amazon, that feels like an important future-proofing of my career of how much Mm -hmm. commerce is going to be moving online. I was really interested in a physical supply chain. For some reason, I've always been really interested in physical supply chain businesses and like I find manufacturing really interesting. 
And I was hopeful that I could find a female founder. And so it just felt like, oh, wow, all these great things are coming into play. And so I said, yes. And now here we are. That's awesome. We are at time. I want to be respectful of it. Are you guys hiring at The Real Real? If so, what are you hiring for? Gosh, we are hiring literally everywhere. We are hiring in sales. We're hiring in product and tech. We are hiring in marketing. So we are hiring in a ton of places. And it is a fabulous mission. I'm very passionate about the circular economy and the re-commerce and resale market. And yeah, go check us out. I think it's realreal.com slash careers. Okay. Is that the best way to go about applying or getting a hold of you? Getting a hold of me, you can find me at katie.sullivan at therealreal.com. And that's K-A-Y-T-I. I know I spell it kind of crazy, um, but that's my email. Wait, I almost forgot the same question I ask every single freaking guest. How could I have forgotten that? What does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply you, it? You were just so enraptured in all the fine details that we've been in. I literally would have called your cell after this and recorded a voice memo <laughs> if I had to. <laughs> so I thought about this because I also did my research and I listened to two episodes of Go to Market Grit, both really good wow. ones. And I was like, oh man, what am I going to say for my definition? And how am I going to, I want to try to give an answer that, you know, is good and memorable and So I started thinking about it. And the first thing I thought was like, okay, where does grit show itself? Like, let's start there. And I think grit shows itself when you are pursuing the chasm in between your current state and your desired future state. Like that's where grit comes to play. It's not when you're maintaining something great necessarily. It's not when, you know, you have no idea where you're directionless. Like it really comes to play when you aren't where you want to be or your team's not where you want to be or your business isn't where you want it to be and like what transpires in your pursuit of that. And then to make it really fun and memorable, I made an equation for grit. Yes. So my equation is grit equals motivation times creativity times perseverance divided by obstacles. Say that one more time. Grit equals motivation times creativity Times perseverance divided by obstacles. We're putting that in the show notes and we're, uh, we're trademarking <laughs> that to Katie Sullivan. Now that I've like made a big thing of it, I'm like, should, should I have actually picked better words? <laughs> I, li- I like it. I like it. Well, Angela Duckworth has her own equation, which is passion plus perseverance. Oh, I like that. And just to put a bow on her definition, which I actually, I want to think about yours more before I respond to it, is basically like, well perseverance, okay, that can show up when you reach an obstacle, but what powers perseverance? And that is passion. So if there's not something that you really care enough about in order to persevere, you're not going to be able to reach down and get the energy that you need in order to persevere. Totally. Although I will say creativity is a, I love this. I love, this is great. (laughs) I love this. Oh man. Great place to wrap. Katie, thank you for the time. Great. Thank you, Jim, and have a good one. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.